We might have just, that might be the first one that sounded good from the guest and both of us. It's like a nice little flam. Yeah, maybe. Chet, a little chet. A little chet print. Well, we made it. Keep the grace nose down. We're finally at double digits. It's a little delayed from the two-week schedule, but we're finally here. Got our got our guest for today to give us a couple hours of his time. Um, yeah, hopefully from here on out, our podcasts start to sound a little bit better as far as the feedback. Yeah. <laughs> Audio. So we got the man to give us the tips here. Yeah, the man with the plan. So welcome, everybody. This is episode 10 of the Aged Out Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Fantini, and sitting next to me, as always, is... Evan Worrell. Our guest today is Mr. Dan Schmidt, the sound tech extraordinaire. That's the right title, right? What is your title for uh, your job? I don't really have a title, but I'll say like Jerry Seinfeld, like, don't oversell me by any means. <laughs> yeah, it's like comedy, man. You gotta be like, he's a, he's a good guy. He, play, he does a lot of sound stuff. No, I guess I'm an audio engineer. Uh, That's the... That's a, that sounds a lot better than sound tech, audio tech. Put that on the one. business cards. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, audio engineer has a little bit more of a nomenclature to it. Yeah. The, the sauce, selling the, <laughs> the sizzle and the steak. Ironically, we were actually watching the Jerry Seinfeld new stand-up last night. I was. Dude, as well as I. Don't want it back. You watched it last night? I watched it last night. We, we, only, we, we only got halfway through it. That was good. That was good. We, At that point, I had watched many... Uh, what were we, football? We were watching football. Yeah, we watched the uh, TC, not TCUS today. Um, what was it? Stanford and USC. USC. It's a great game. It's a good game. All right, we'll start as always with a guest. I'll let uh, Mr. Schmidt here kind of introduce himself, give his background in the marching activity, where he started from, where he ended up, and we'll just see where it takes us. Yeah, you said you had kind of like an interesting story for that, right? Yeah, I, the marching band thing with me uh, kind of was random. Like, I went into high school not wanting to be in drumline, kind of thinking it was not very cool. Um, and then, because I went to a performance high school, like I had like a performance high school, and then like uh, actual where I would take all my academic classes, different building, different school. But uh so the guy who was a snare drummer in marching band, they did like this overnight trip was like the, their final kind of like state, but they would go to a competition overnight. And uh, after they performed, he like had gotten like belligerently drunk in his room, and got kicked out of the band. <laughs> so Solid. later on, later on in the year, they're supposed to go to Disney World for like their marching band trip and they didn't have anybody to play snare drum. So they were like, hey, do you want to put on a snare drum, play some taps, play a parade tune, go to Disney World for free? And I was like... Yeah, I want to do that. Definitely. Sign and so up. that's that's literally how I started marching band. After that, it was like, well, we don't have a snare drummer for next year. So I just did that. And then... then just roll you on over into Yeah, it. right? Just, I hadn't played a... The first time I ever played and marched was like December of my freshman year of high school. Was that like your first intro to band too? Or had you been in like middle school band? No, yeah. I'd been in like elementary school, and middle school band, but it was all concert stuff. I never, never touched a, you know, like marching snare drum. I never wore a drum. Every, all my drums were just on stands at that point. I like your story. <laughs> I wish, yeah, I wish I could do that. And people ask me all the time, do you miss marching? I'm like, no. Heck no. Not at all. I, in fact, I just showed Mike earlier a Snapchat of like Crossman them waking up for camp and I'm like, oh, that makes my stomach hurt. Like early in the morning. Oh, no. Th those days are over. Well, your story of getting into it's a lot more interesting and funny than mine of just watching the movie Drumline and being like, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, that's an awful. I, I mean, I was like around the movie Drumline time, but I didn't think that movie was cool either. Oh, I I wasn't in band. I mean, this this would probably would have been 2001, 2000. No, this would have been like 2002, 2003. Okay, what high school did you go to? Uh, manual and Y-Pass. So Y-Pass, yeah. yeah it's in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, 
which is kind of a born and raised there. Still live there now, but do the audio thing. So, so you make the rounds. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. For audio, it's like uh, Ohio, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, South Carolina, Florida, Texas. Um, He's always flying somewhere when I see him on Facebook. Always yeah. in an airport somewhere or doing something. We'll revisit that. Yeah, we'll re- we'll get into that a little so, bit more. So from there, from high school, in high school, had you been introduced or made aware of like the kind of the competitive sports beyond that, like drum corps, or did you find out about that later? Uh, I mean, it was it was further on down the line once I had like the marching band bug bitten into me. Um, I saw Cavaliers two thousand two. Uh, frame, solid. Framework, solid that, show. The first show I ever saw, and I, like I don't know if I watched a show for like six to eight months after that. It was like that show was just like, holy crap! You saw it live? No, I saw. I mean, it was obviously okay. a video of it because I, I mean, it was in high school. But I remember sitting in the computer lab in high school and like going and watching that video and be like, "Yo, this is what's up." Yeah, these this doesn't look cheesy and dumb like I once thought it was. Yeah, this doesn't look like a bunch of like you know. Where the Nerd, media, nerdy, nerdy, nerdy band kids running around on a field is like, yo, that's legit. <laughs> that was actually one of the first shows I saw, too. I, Southwind was the first group I ever saw live, but I used to have a VHS, throwing it back, uh, rewind before you play. Of, yeah. uh, I used to have a VHS of 2002 Cavaliers that I would watch. Yeah, The first drum corps show I ever saw live was uh, 2005 Seattle Cascades. Um, air, like they played David Gillingham Aerodynamics, and I thought that was the coolest shit ever. <laughs> we like the Aerodynamics piece, like concert band was really cool. Had a lot of like cool percussion effects, like rolled cymbal on timpani and stuff. And they did it as a drum corps show, and I like knew all the music. It was a, it was a ten. I mean, it's Seattle Cascades in two thousand five. So hey man, but that was my first ever RCA dome. Still man. just like blown away, like this yeah. is loud yeah, it was and a 14 it's cool. 15 year old in yeah, drum corps exactly. is insane. and it was live and it was RCA dome and never like gone to like see a band show or anything it was legit actually that was uh 2005 funny story uh Johnny Lee Lane who still works at Remo That's we were out name. we were out in the uh out in the lot and he was like delivering drum heads to drum lines cuz it was the Midwestern Championship in mm-hmm. Indianapolis so, like middle of the year and uh, me and my buddy were like, hey, we can help you. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, take these heads over to cadets and take these heads to Cavaliers and take these heads to Blue Devils. And like, and you stole all the heads. We, we didn't steal any, but like we delivered them. And he was like, here's your, here's some, uh, a head for your trouble. And he gave us uh, a flam two and a Sharpie. And I like uh, took it down the Blue Devil snare line in 05 and had everybody sign it. I, went it, to- I mean, I still have the heads this somewhere in my life, but yeah. I actually went to that show too. I remember watching the cadets warm up at that 2005 show, mm-hmm. just being, like, completely blown away. And they were, they warmed up, like, off in the middle of nowhere, too. Like, we had to, like, follow them. I th- I don't think if we had seen them walking from their truck to warm up, we ever would have found them. They were off in the cut. Now, isn't it funny, like, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, they're going away, it's so cool. But when you're actually a member, you're like, oh, we suck. We have to go warm up away from everyone else. Yeah, can't we That's just, what... like, warm up next to the, the EQ truck or something? Yeah, it was like, no. Yeah, that's how it was when I was at Madison, man. We always like walked, you know, half a mile to our lot so that we, because I think everybody was embarrassed at <laughs> how bad we played. That's how Blue Stars were. Right? And we, we weren't bad by any means, I don't think. But like just your quad line. Well, <laughs> hot take of the day. Well, uh, they played well together eventually, but it was super easy. Might be true. Yes. Uh, <laughs> they always Joel Hilbert, our like battery coordinator slash snare tech. He, what year did you say the cadets always walked far away? That was a five. That was a five. Yeah, okay, so he was five. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's every year. But. Well, 
Well, he always Maybe. walked us like half a mile in the middle of some neighborhood yep. of nowhere to warm up. And we un- never understood why. He was like, well, we didn't really be bothered by anybody. So you touched okay. on that you were in Madison, obviously. Was that before you went to college? I was getting ready. Oh, uh, let me ask no. this first. Let me ask this first. When was the, what was the first drum corps camp you ever went to? Oh, the first drum corps camp I ever went to was Cavaliers 2009. Ah, Cavaliers 2007. For the 2007 summer? For the 2007 summer. Okay. So you were like, what, 15? Uh, yeah. Uh, gosh, I'd have to do the math. Yeah, I was I was I was down there. Did you know Ted at the time? No, I was like nineteen. I graduated in. That's was, right. You're older than us. Yeah, I think. How old are you? Uh, I'm twenty nine. Okay. You're a year the, older than me. Knocking on thirty. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was two thousand seven. I I had known Ted Leith at that time, and like he kind of convinced me. You know, it was like just go out, just get a you know get an experience for it. I auditioned for Pitt, and like did timpani and marimba, and I mean I knew how to play like concert stuff really well, but that was kind of my first ever. You know, kind of eye opening. Like, yeah, oh, like oh. oh, this is actually what happens. You know, there's not just like everybody kind of gets together on a field and knows what they're doing already. Everybody sucks um, for the first like month. There's all preparation the and practice, and spring yeah. training. And I think I did not audition anywhere in '08. Um, I think I and then 2009 was um, would have been Blue Coats, and I ended up at Blue Stars and didn't like it. And then um, probably went with Dylan Combs and Brent Hulick. Yeah, didn't you? I and yeah. Ben Thompson and uh, you went to Blue Stars in '09. Yeah, we it was, was it for snare drum. I, yeah, it was for snare drum, and I was, I was for, for bass drum. And we decided Saturday night that he like had already gotten cut, and I was not vibing it. And so like we just left. We went to White House in the middle of the night at like three in the morning, got some White Castles and drove down the, like drove back home. <laughs> two, I think it was like two hours or something. Yeah, it's not very far. Yeah. It was, two hours it was like, nah, you know, I mean, we were, we were, it was audition camp. We were doing, um, asterisk drill and it like, I was oh, just like, no, gross. this is not me. That's uh, is it, was it Brent Montgomery? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So that dude has disappeared since like the blue stars. That's left true. There. I haven't he, heard he, anything. He hasn't been around, but he, he worked with star when they were really good. Really? He like Mark, he, yeah, he taught he star, taught star in the early nineties when they were phenomenal. Uh, so Everybody so we there. had friends, we <laughs> mentioned Dylan Combs and Brent Hume, who I'm sure we'll have potentially some of them on here at some point. They, they both marched. Well, one of them marched and one of them kind of marched blue stars in 09. Oh, story <laughs> in and of uh, we'll get to that some down the road sometime when we have Brent sit down with us. But, um, they said Brent Montgomery kicked the shit out of them, and, and they said they. I remember them telling me about the asterisk drill they would do at camps, at audition camps. Yes, like you need to have a visual part of your audition, but you're not beating the kids' asses at an audition camp. Like, do enough to see what they can do and what they can handle, but you don't need to like. All right, let's see. Who's can got you it. move your feet in time? Great. All right. All right. Let's we'll go, drum. The, we'll yeah. beat the crap out of you later. It was like. Eight counts straight forward, and you did like every diagonal around the clock. But when you would go like you know up, you know, like up and over to the diagonal, it was on that forty-five degree plane, but still up eight over eight, but in eight counts. So it was what, like a six to five. Or like so yeah, you went like six. eight to five straight forward, six to five on the diagonal, back and forth, then eight to five all like as a, a sli- like a sliding right. Yeah, slider. Someone yeah, who studies that. I was like, man. This like, and I wanted to be the guy that was like, "Yo, that's dumb." But I was also like first auditioning, and I was like, "I'm just gonna sit back and try and make it work." But like, that was one of the reasons I was like, "Yeah, I don't know if this is for me." No, he, yeah. you made the right choice just from like, because I'm all out of those guys in nine. I marched with in ten. They were still there. 
and they would tell stories. They were the Blue Stars track team, was what they called themselves, <laughs> because yeah. he made them run and beat and basics and beat the crap out of them so much. And in 08 and 07, because the, the drummers were worse in 7 and 8, obviously, because that was when the Blue Stars were making that climb up to the top 12 mm-hmm. at that point. And it was a lot of those same guys in the snare line and quad line and bass line that started in like 07. Like, you know who Jonathan Leslie is? Mm-hmm. He was the center in like all those years. Yep. He w- went through all that. And he goes, dude, it was... We had to get our asses kicked even more because we weren't as good at drums because we were all inexperienced and young. And so he just... It was it was not an option to not be good, so he just basically put his foot in our butt all summer until we didn't suck as bad. I, I've actually heard stories about Brett Montgomery being a five hour energy guy. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like before every block. All right, got my five yeah, hour energy. Yeah, like you know, five hour energy for the block. So I can imagine that they got their butts handed to them. Alright, so you went and auditioned at Blue Stars in 09, and then you ended up marching scouts that summer, so yeah, so I had gotten cut from all those places. Actually, both of my drum corps stories are really funny. I like I have never gotten a contract for a season when I was marching uh, before the last camp that they had. So in between the last camp and move-ins is when I got my contract for both years. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's... At Madison, I was like, uh, I think like uh, had like talked to Chris Koenig, who was in Rhythm X at the time, who knew a bass drummer that was in Rhythm X that was looking for somebody to play bass drum at Madison that summer, and kind of through the grapevine was like, yeah, you should come out. We should was you that know drum. Thomas by chance? Uh, no, it was uh, Nick Cribs. Oh yeah, okay. Nick. Uh, and and so you should come out. You should you know drum or whatever. And I went. That was like the first camp that I like legitimately felt like I had a shot for. It was me and this other kid. Uh, what bass drum did you end up playing? Top. Uh, yeah, uh, the other. Three bass drums, the middle three were both three-year vets, and they were auditioning top and bottom. And there was like four people that didn't have a spot, two for top and two for bottom. And that was the first Roger Carter line that like I had been a part of. And man, I, like walking into that camp, and it was like you know crazy eights, which was like four four three eight four four three eight, all eighth note stasis. I mean, like your eighth notes are kind of hopping around the grid, and, and like marking time to that was just incredible. And like. I really had no clue whether or not I was actually going to make it. And <laughs> the, the funny story about that one is that, like, I had, uh, I lived in Louisville my entire life. And when I was 18 years old, I got a fleur-de-lis tattoo because that is the crest of Louisville, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Um, and uh, at that time, like, my mom was moving away. Dad was moving away. The whole family was kind of, like, moving off away from the city. And so it was kind of like, know your roots, know where you came from. Now, fast forward, uh, I, got, I show up in a Madison Scouts camp, and I was like, I can't have this fleur de tattoo on me at a Madison Scouts camp. Like, they're <laughs> going to be like, this kid got the, the fleur de tattoo. So, I took a knee brace and put it over my calf muscle for the entire camp. And, they're, and like, I got to my individual audition with Roger Carter and Jeff Gleason, and I remember it was like on this train track. And uh, he was asking me to play. Wait, wait, wait. wait on a wait, train track? Well, it was, like, it was like next to a train. Like the, okay. The, the, okay. They were learning drill for like the opener or something. And like we walked off the field and there was a train track over. I was literally standing like off the side of a train track. Je- uh, Jeff Cleason, Roger Carter, and me. And he was like, all right, I want you to play open, open, close, paradiddle diddles. And I was like, okay, open, close, open. Or uh, slow, like, fast, slow. Slow, fast, slow, paradiddle diddles. And I did it and like did the whole thing. And, and he was like, all right, so... Yeah, you you play really well. We think you'd fit really well with the line. The guys seem to like you. We just have one question: What's wrong with your leg? Are you injured? And like pointed to the knee brace that I had wrapped around my calf. And so I'm like, you know, well, it's like probably 20 at this time, and I was like super. I was like, well, you know, like I, got, I started getting into the story, and I like. 
pull down like like the leg brace and show uh Roger and Jeff and they fell like literally fell on the ground laughing. <laughs> They're like, I can't believe it. Like they thought I had like some injury serious injury that was gonna keep me out of it for like the whole season. This and guy's like, not gonna make it through movies. Yeah, he's not gonna make it. He's gonna bust his knee or something. I just didn't want to look like a tool. I just didn't want to look like a tool. And they were like, I think you look more of a like a tool because you have this like knee brace on around your calf muscle. It was just super funny. I ended up getting the spot, but it was like I mean, it was like one of those things where I got contracted on Sunday and had like 10 days to be back in Wisconsin for move-ins. Wow. And, and that's the same thing with Cavaliers. I think I got a call on Tuesday from a video audition at Cavaliers, and they were like, hey, it's Tuesday night. Can you be in Chicago on Sunday night? And so, like, I sold my car, moved my stuff into storage, uh, you know, r- rented out my apartment for the summer and flew to Chicago for like three, four months. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you did Madison Scouts in 09. What was it like? Because obviously both of us have marched for Roger. What was, I'd like to hear what he was like during that summer and see if it was like, because see, see if it was similar. He's evolved. Was he, was he like a. Well, what was his role there? At yeah. What was his the role caption first head? He was the caption head. He also wrote the battery book. Okay. Um, so he was, he was a little bit heavier handed in the design process than I think he was at Blue Coats when you were there. Well, I was there. He was, it was his first year there. So he was just the snare tech slash like battery coordinator type role. Like he wasn't really he wasn't yeah. writing. He wasn't designing in any way. He was just teaching. And I was the last year of him like writing, teaching, designing before he took a break. And yeah. He like Coats. disappeared for a while and then yeah. he reappeared back with Mike. At I mean, Coats. that season was crazy. He, he was very much uh, a proponent of playing in time. Like that's you, important. You have to play your rhythms in time, beat to beat. You know, if you can't put the metronome on and not hear the metronome for a minute and a half, then you're not clean. Like you should be able mm-hmm. to bury the met, you know, beat to beat to beat for you know a solid chunk of the show. Like phrases, and we were a bad drumline, so we could not play beat to beat for like more than two measures. <laughs> so it was a rough season. We had two guys on the snare line from Thailand. Uh, oh, interesting. That, that there was a language language barrier with them, so that was pretty difficult. And it was an eight-man snare line, and they were both one in from the outside. So it wasn't like they were next to each other and could help each other out. Yeah. They were on opposite ends I feel like that was a mistake, not putting them next to each other. I mean, they weren't like... strong players. So would you put two of your weaker players next to each other? Well, I personally I, it, don't think you should put your weakest players... Uh, one in either anyway. I they may not have been one in either way, but I just remember that being a struggle. The fun part about the 09 season was that any problem that happened, uh, the baseline was like the saving grace. Like if we needed a tempo change, it was like, oh, we'll put in eight counts and the bass drums will play threes. You know, like, <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. like okay, now we we're in a new tempo. Yeah. You know, like the bass drums saved a lot of that show transitionally, like where we would just, I mean, I wish I could pull out some of the old music. That was the hardest bass drum music I ever played, and it was so much fun. Really? The I and E that we won, we actually won I and E that year, and Ooh. all of the I and E stuff that we played was show beats up like 20, 30 clicks. That's so like funny. all of like the crazy stuff that we did in I and E was just like show beats. I mean, lasers and just hand, hand. Yeah, it was cool. So that's cool. That's a, a neat experience. I never even thought of doing I and E. It never. Most, they, my didn't, mind. they didn't let Crown. They didn't let us do it at Crown. They're like, nope, that's not an option. You all can't do it. I just so. wouldn't have been good enough to win or place, so I didn't. Well, and with it, it. it was my first year marching, and had um, base two, three, and four not been three year vets, and like I think one of them was an age out, and two of them had like a year after that. They were just like, we want to play on I and E, we want to win I and E, like da 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 da. And I, I like was just kind of like the guy that was okay. I'll be along for the ride, like. 
I can play checks in time. Yeah. You know, like, I'm still really young, so. That's all you got to do if you're on top. Just, yes. just play in time and let everybody else do their thing. Play checks in time and play your roles beefy. Pretty That's much. That's funny. All right, so Madison Scouts happened. Learned a lot there. And then what made you want to, you said your first camp ever was Cavaliers. Was that, like, where you always wanted to march? Yeah, I think it was from the frameworks thing. Like, I, I, like, was kind of buried really, in the back of your mind. Yeah, I mean, and that whole, like, um, fraternity thing was real bit. Like, I was in a fraternity in college, so, like, I understood that kind of, like, fraternal aspect of things. It's funny that I only marched all male corps, and they were both kind of, like, last minute. Like, it wasn't a choice for me to march Madison and Cavaliers. It was kind of just more of, like I said, like, I got a contract last minute, and... You know, I got cut at Bluecoats in 2010. Was like that was the line that was like all you know, Dave Duin and you Justin know, Brenneman, Justin and uh, you know, Frank, yeah, and all those dudes. Um, so I was like number six on that baseline and ended up not having a spot to march my age out. And then there was a, a open video audition for Cavaliers bottom base, and I got that. And that's how I marched. I went from top at Madison to bottom at Cavaliers just because I needed a place to march. You've marched all five drums, haven't you? I have marched all five drums. That's pretty unique to say. Wait, yeah. time out. Time, what? So you did top at Madison, bottom at Cavaliers. Where did you do two, three, and four? Um, I did four. Well, I did uh, base two and base four. Base two at... Um, Redline? No, base three was Redline. Base four was like, uh, oh crap, I think one year in West Athens I did one. Uh, I, I played two at, um, oh gosh, I don't know. There's <laughs> so many drum lines. I've played two a few, a few times, or played four a few times at the Bengals drum line, played two a few times in indoor, played it in college band, I think. It's, you know. Dan and I actually have a unique, uh, I guess, meeting when we first met, or I guess... And that was at Tate's Creek. Yeah. Because I we all thought you were super old. Because I, I was in Tate's Creek when they were in open class. Was that 2008? Eight. eight. So that's my second year at Tate's Creek. And you were teaching. And we all like thought you were like 24, 25. But you were like 19 or something. Yeah, I was like 17, <laughs> You're like a year older than me. I was like not the oldest person in the membership. And I was on, I was a symbol tech guy. Yeah. And it was funny because like they were like, "Well, you're good enough to to be on the baseline. We just don't have a spot for you on the baseline because it was kind of like going from a high school group into an independent group." And they were like, "We can't you, really kick out our high school kids." Would you want to teach the symbols? And I was like, "Uh, I could teach splits." And so like I just taught symbols for a year. That's funny. that which is pretty interesting. Like that kind of uh, plays a, a big role in kind of where I am now. Just because I've been around the design aspect for almost 10 years now with different groups. Yeah. You know, being in the design aspect of that and just marching band stuff. And, like, that kind of really um, was eye-opening, especially from going from a teching, teaching, designing spot into a uh, membership spot again. Having already seen the other side of it. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to interject with that because I thought it was funny that... I met him and immediately thought you were like six years older than me, but just because you were teaching. <laughs> it's just a random, random lives of marching band. So, yeah. so making the transition to indoor, you never marched Tate's Creek, did you? No. No. So you taught there as a symbol tech. Good for you. <laughs> hey, they're actually doing open class back this, year. this year. They moved back down yes, to open. they did move back I think that's open. a wise decision. Him and I have been saying that for three, four years, and it's not a knock on them. It's just you have to look at the talent pool you're pull, pull, pulling from. 
I think anytime like it be happened, more positive experience for the members. It happened with him. It happened with you. You never did Tate's Creek, but you left the area once you got good enough to do Rhythm X or uh, Red Line or yeah. whatever. So like Evan and I were in Tate's Creek. There's been a handful of other people on various instruments that have started there. But MCM's like two and a half hours from us. Then you have Rhythm X is like two to three hours from us. Once they get good enough, you're not gonna compete. With those two groups. Oh, and you got Gateway, and you have George Mason, and you have Matrix, and you have Legacy, Legacy, and you have Cavaliers Indoor. I mean, you're talking, what what is Chicago, four or five hours red line? I mean, these are all... Those are pretty far. I was, I mean... I did red line when I lived in Kentucky. I mean, crazy. But, Uh, I mean, like, you're just talking about there's six to seven groups within a two to three hour radius. That are already established world-class groups that have a reputation... And you're an open class group. And I'm just saying, it uh, like, geographically, it was never in their interest to try to jump to world. Oh, and I'll give you this one little tidbit, too. Kentucky Kentucky is not a band-friendly state. It is not. Uh, no. Especially for independent organizations, like trying to stay somewhere, trying to rehearse somewhere. So they, they were just fighting an uphill battle from a logistical financial support you know what i mean just from having to pay for rehearsal space all the time yeah kentucky is also not a band friendly state from a skill level of the members aspect like none of the marching bands or drum lines or color guards in this state can compete on a national level at a high level well and that probably goes back to the state championship was still judged like it's 1980s marching band yeah Evolution has not favored yeah, for sure. That. <laughs> I didn't mean Brad to go that direction, but I was just, yeah, I was yeah. just a little, little aside Andy. there. So, um, you marched indoor. Was Redline the first? You said you did West Athens. Did you march with that? I marched West Athens the the two years that they were in existence. Uh, the first year we got dead last place in open class. Uh, I think it was like a 68. There's still, there's not, uh, and it's funny that like the West Athens thing, because there's, there's a proponent of, or there's a conglomerate of people that are, have been very successful in the activity that started at this actually a lot, kind of shit shit show. Um, But um, I mean, Justin Fisher was a snare tech back then. It's great dude. Does Henry Clay stuff. Um, uh, Adam Norris, who has uh, been at Rhythm X and, uh, Blue, Stars Blue Stars and, and Centerville and was at Phantom for a while. He was in the tenor line. Ben Thompson was in the snare line. Dylan Combs in the snare line. Ted Leith, uh, who now lives in Australia but was in uh, Cavaliers for years, was in the snare line. Uh, All I, these people that just I, somehow. Yeah, it was, and I, I think it was kind of a bonding experience of like, kind, you know, like it felt like war. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I can vividly recall the night, the Friday night before, this is kind of a tangent, but the Whatever. Friday night before the Indy Regional, uh, the the director told us that we were not unloading the truck fast enough and that when we got to the Regional, we were going to have to unload the truck in less than five minutes. So we spent from like nine o'clock on Friday night to like 3.30 in the morning unloading and reloading the truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like the the establishment like, organization. I would have left. It's like, I why don't we just show up to the show earlier? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and then I mean, there's stories that are just like there's stories that when I say them sound like they're made up. I mean, we got to the Indy Regional, unloaded the truck, and had when all the weight had gotten out of the trailer, the trailer popped off the trailer hitch. Like, nobody had secured the trailer <laughs> to the trailer hitch. All of the weight of the marimbas and drums and everything was holding the trailer to the truck. Oh my god. That's gosh. where we're at. I mean, it's <laughs> well, so the moral of the story basically is everyone starts somewhere. Yeah, you just got to get out there and start. Yeah, just just go somewhere. 
So you did that. Was Redline the next group you did after that, or did you do it somewhere in between? Um, gosh, I don't know. Yeah, timeline. Think, is, yeah, it's timeline. <laughs> it's that was 06, 07, and then uh, Redline was 2010. So I don't think I... Uh, 06, 07 was West Athens. I taught Tate's Creek in 2008. I did nothing in 2009. I went and saw uh, WGI Finals in 2009, which was like Touch and all those guys... Um, and then 2010, I was in Redline, and 2011, I was in Rhythm X, and I aged out after 2011. One of the best Rhythm X bass lines ever. Yeah, uh, that bass line was incredible. Everybody in the line finished top three in DCI drums the year that they aged out. So, like, I was second in drums. Dave and Justin had gotten third at Blue Coats. Frank had gotten second, second. at 09 Crown, and then Jared, Jared had, had won at Phantom. Jared was coming off a drum trope uh, championship, and I mean, there were some. There were some two and three year vets from the baseline that got cut that year. Yes, <laughs> that was an insane year. We, yeah. our, we'd come back from breaks because that was my first year in the snare line, and Evan's second year there for the Mex. And we'd come back from like meal breaks, and the baseline would be just arced up in the middle of the, like the it was Kettering High School's band room, just like playing music, and like it was absurd. Like the whole ensemble would just come back and like walk in and sit in front of them like children, like legs crossed Indian style, and just like enjoy the show. And then they'd stop rehearsing, and Frank would like air put a wig on with a wig across yeah. the floor. <laughs> that was a fun. That was a fun year. I think that's probably the only season that I've been a part of where there hasn't been some sort of headache. With you know, there's always that one with person your section. In, there in were your headaches section. that season for sure. Yeah. But in, in, in within our section, yeah, you know, yeah. like usually there's like one guy on the snare line or one guy on the tenor line that's just not vibing. Or even in the bass line, it's always been like there's always one dude who's kind of. On the outliers, uh, but that was the first year that everybody was always on the same page. We spent every minute together. You could tell. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Kind of to backtrack, we're, we're jumping all over the place, but you briefly mentioned that you marched to all male corps, and one of my, I guess, most hectic or stressful moments while I'm like on tour is the time between finishing rehearsal prior to a show eating, loading, showering, and getting on the bus for the show because you just have all these people who are just in mass exodus, leaving the field, getting food, going to the shower. And like I just imagine it was so much more efficient for you guys. Ah, yeah, the EPL time. Uh, well, and I will say at Madison it was still kind of hectic because we didn't get a lot of time. At Cavaliers, they take a lot of care of you. Like At Cavaliers, we I think all of our EPL times were like, at minimum was two and a half. Oh my god! Blue coats was like two hour yeah. and a half to two. Two and, and a half. It was plenty of time. It was and and the other cool and you're, I know what you're trying to lead at in Cavaliers. If there's only boys that are in the core, I mean, you can use boys and girls locker rooms. You can shower in the girls' locker room. You can go if you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of block and you have to leave. You can run into the girls' restroom. Like there, I think there when we were on tour, there was a nurse and like maybe a few volunteer people that were females. Everybody else, like all the tech staff, all of the design staff, were all male. So it was pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah, because I'm over here fighting like for crown. I mean, seventy five percent, if not more, of the core is male, and you all have to use one locker room that is designed for one class of gym students that has like maybe 10 to 12 shower heads <laughs> yeah. if, if you're lucky yeah so you're just like oh you're just standing there waiting in line like oh my gosh please stop taking forever in the shower i just need to like rinse off and go <laughs> put my uniform on and yeah stuff. that was definitely the best part about cavaliers is that all of uh, well in madison too but and you guys got fed well i ate off the cavaliers truck a few times uh <laughs> i was i was in the year that our cook truck burnt down so oh, like for the first God. 
the first two weeks of tour, I have such weird drum corps stories. For the first uh, two weeks of tour at Cavaliers, um, they uh, figured out like all the housing sites, let them into the cafeteria, and we were like getting meals cooked from the school cafeteria, and that was bomb. Wow. And then we got a brand new food truck, and that was bomb as well. Uh, Madison, Madison, also the food, food truck burned down. I don't know if I'm, it's me, but yeah. Wait, uh, both the food trucks at both cores you marched the years you were marching, the cook truck burned down. Yeah. Well, one of them. Get out of my Cav- house. Cavaliers, Cavaliers <laughs> got a brand new food truck. I think Madison just repaired it. Uh, <laughs> that sounds about right. That's par for both the courses there. Yeah. So City of Rosemont's like, oh, here is your new, is your new stuff. It's your new yeah. stuff. That's pretty funny. Well, yeah, I always envied that. Like the Cavaliers, like all this e-pack load and we get done with the show and I'm eating snack after show and I'm like, well, what do the Cavaliers have? Uh, they're having ice cream sundaes? Yeah, I'm going to go get in their line. Yeah, <laughs> right? the, uh, Just look like you belong. Well, and, and I mean, everybody's at, tan. I just take my shirt off, whatever. At Cavaliers, like, I I got treated like a professional athlete. Like, I mean, marching base five, I like had a lot of back problems. I was maybe 165. The drum weighed about 52 pounds. So like, I was, it was like, it was a third of my body weight, but in the same sense, like, they had a massage therapist on tour. Uh, what? Yeah, who who would give me like a, a back massage or like pop my back, kind of like a chiropractor in between, in, in between EP like the last ensemble run and us leaving for the show. That's insane. I will say we did have uh, my second year at Crown. We did have like a sports physical trainer on with us all the time, uh, and she would help people with like injuries or if they were having aggravation. So that was very nice. Don't get me started on the athletic part of drum corps. Yeah, yeah. I've talked about it enough on here. All right. Well, before we move on from Cavaliers, so. I am envious. I completely loved all my staff when I, everywhere I marched, but I am envious that you got to play and learn and have ensemble with Mike McIntosh because that dude just seems like an amazing individual. He absolutely is. Uh, like I will tell you that he's the kind of instructor that will run ensemble from the field. And like most people in like a drum corps setting or a marching band setting are like, no, you need to be on top of the hands, and that's all you get, and you don't get, you need to be on top of the hands. But with my, Mac, it was always like, you need to be, and he gave you a specific amount to be on top of the hands, whether it's like a sixty-four, thirty-second, sixteenth note, and he would say the reason that you need to be on top of the hands is because you're back here on this this yard line, whatever, and the trumpets you're also playing with are all the way over here. They need, they're playing with the hands so that they can play better as an ensemble. You need to be on top of the hands so everything lines up up top. And you're referring to drum major. Yeah, how, they, how you read the hands on the field from the drum major. But like he was so meticulous, and not only meticulous in the information he gave, but making sure the performer understood the information that they were getting and why they were getting that. And that's where I learned the most. Like, teaching other kids, like, not just, oh, you need to do this for this situation, but this situation will come up other times and this is how you handle it. Yeah. So you're not just like fixing one issue. You're fixing multiple issues at one time. Yeah. And just the tutelage of knowing why you're doing something that doesn't happen a lot in drum corps just because of the time aspect. Like you don't have a lot of time to tell kids why they're doing what they're doing. True. So I'll take this opportunity. Mac, if you're listening to this, we'd love to sit down with you sometime and record one of these. Dude, that'd be hilarious. Pick hey, your brain. I just always think back of him. Uh, of course, it's on YouTube now. The tape that he gave her, the Megs in touch, where he's just like, "I get, I can handle it. I'm passing out." And I'm just like, "Man, this dude just seems like." Or when he called Dan Shack out after prelims in 2011 and said, "Dan Shack, you freak is yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, he's a great guy. Uh, and and not only that, but he's very, um, he just understands the activity and he loves 
teaching people about the activity. He's he's very deeply rooted in a lot of things, and he he has a lot of kind of uh, edgy opinions, maybe to some people that don't necessarily understand why he thinks that. But he's a great proponent of telling you why he thinks this, and like this is his tried and true method, or this is why I've gotten to this solution. And that that was the best thing I always picked up from him. Yeah, it's pedagogy and stuff. Pedagogy. Why, like, why he teaches the way he does. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, uh, he's, a, he's a very pedagogical teacher. Yeah, and I've just, of course, the groups that he's worked with, obviously, uh, of late Blue Coats and Cavaliers have been very talented, skillful, but I've just always heard that he's been a guy that if things aren't going well, things aren't clicking, instead of just, like, kicking everybody's ass, it's just like... It's, you guys aren't playing right now. Just take a break real quick. We'll just come back to it. Yeah. Uh, the morning of Allentown, we were tracking, and he sat the entire drum line down. We had a 20-minute talk. Like We only had like one block before Allentown, and he sat everybody down, and he like had this big speech, and he was like, look, guys, like you guys are acting like you're not in it. Like At that point in uh, 2010, it was like Bluecoats, BD, Phantom, and Cavaliers were all going for drums. Mm-hmm. And it was like, he's like, you're acting like you're not in it. Every night is a different person who's in first place in drums. If you just go out and you execute, you're going to be fine. And like I remember us sitting down and being like, at first we were kind of like, yo, we need to get better today. Why are we sitting down? But at the end of it, we were everybody was like juiced and like, all right, let's go to Ensemble. And let's focus. play. You guys ended up finishing like second that year, didn't you? Second drums, second overall. We lost to BD overall and Phantom in drums. Phantom was the best. That was a good Phantom. Phantom line. was the yeah. best. Yeah, oh, I mean, like I, I was, so at least. I was upset until I heard their drum tape, and I was like, "Yeah." I, I mean, like they had a very clean drum tape. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what one. it is too, like being in the right place at the right time. We did not have a clean drum tape. Yeah. So I can understand, like, even if the judge was in the wrong place at the right time for us, it's like they deserve to win. Yeah. Fair enough. They were for sure good. All right, did you want to get ask him a little bit about how he got into the yeah, audio engineering thing? I guess like, we'll transition a little bit from uh, like experience to kind of into what you do now. Yeah, which, let's, let's do that first, and then we will get into end with his thoughts on the current state of drum corps and indoor and all that stuff. So okay. we'll, we'll end with that. So yeah, that sounds good. How, what spark, have you always been interested in audio stuff, or what kind of spurred that, I guess? Uh, I mean, I, 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 like my dad had, was a drummer since I was a little kid. He started playing drums when he was 16. Uh, so I've always like, you know, been a roadie and helped him gig and stuff and like have been around music for my entire life and live music. Um, and then, you know, like we always had drums in the house. So I was always like a drum set drummer. Uh, and then marching band thing kind of took over and I've always been really big into the audio side of things. My brother does it for a living down in Nashville, um, like the audio engineering and recording and stuff. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's fine. Like I, I kind of got into it from just being around it as a kid. Um, and then I've always loved the audio thing. I have, I, I like being able to nitpick and in very detail oriented. You've always struck me as a very, very detail oriented person. Yeah. I don't do anything unless I have a reason for why I'm doing it. Um, and so to be able to, you know, sit back rep after rep and continually nitpick and fi- like, I, whenever I go out to an audio consultation, people are like, do you want it again? Do you need that chunk again? It's like, I can, we can keep going as many times as you want to. I'm going to keep getting it closer and closer and closer. Yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's like, yeah, it's fine. Did you um, study it in school or was it self-taught or? Uh, it was a little bit of self-taught just because I was around it as a kid. But when I went to school, I actually went for um, music business, um, which was a new degree at the time. It was kind of uh, half percussion performance and half recording engineering. 
So I still had like lessons and ensemble classes and still had to play solo lit. But instead of going to woodwind and string methods and all that stuff, I was going into the studio and doing, you know, sound principle projects and, you know, understanding all that, you know, like amplitude and that's pretty cool. How sound works and why sound works and that sort of stuff. They still have that program at EKU? Yeah. Cool. I'm uh, sure it's probably gotten even better too. Just... I think that's the program Aaron Bailey was in. I think that's what he did. Oh, okay. Cool. I, uh, the, the professor I had was uh, Professor Munson, who was a drum set professor, and he had just graduated from MTSU with a uh, master's in like recording engineering. So like he was fresh off the tutelage of like understanding all of the new technology and was able to like, kind of like cram it down our throats. It was, I wish I would have gotten more of it um, just from being there, but with it being so new, it was, uh, it was cool to be a part of. And what would you say, I guess, is kind of like, like your breakthrough or like your kind of introduction into that, into the marching band world, like one of the first big groups that you started to get into. Gosh, I just I feel like every time you ask me a question, I have to tell a story. That's fine. This is what it's like storytelling. It's not even like an interview. It's like, just tell me your stories. Uh, so in 2011, the year after I aged out, um, Dr. Allison, who was a DCI judge and was also the director of bands at EKU where I was, um, he had a DCI judge research project which is essentially a, a data collection on DCI shows to figure out what was effective. And so like I had a timeline from zero, zero to 12 minutes. And my job was to write a line whenever the snares and tenors were playing unison rhythms and write an X when they stopped. And so like I would go through the entire show and everybody had a timer that was sitting in front of us. And we would mark down like, okay, they're playing together. They're not playing together. Okay, they're playing. And somebody else was doing when the color guard is on flag. And the other, and somebody else was doing when the band is holding and when the band is moving. And so this was huge data collection to figure out, you know, what makes an effective moment in marching band. Are they standing still? Are they playing unison rhythms? Are they all on flag? You know, like all of this data collection, we did it for an entire season. Wow. So well, the cool thing about that is that we got an all-access pass to any DCI show we wanted to in 2011 because we were essentially sitting in the box at like Atlanta and all these places, That's finals. So I got to watch 2011 finals from the judges' box, uh, the top 10 cores. And like I loved Crown Show that year. But I was like, man, Crown Show is so awesome. I wish I could hear the front ensemble. And at that time, like I had known Andrew through uh, Rhythm X and Mike Bishop was there and then Mike from Redline and all these dudes that uh, go way back. And so I had sent them a text and I was like, man, I, I love the show. I wish I could have heard the front. Or maybe we were talking at Basies or something. Yeah, just like casual passing. Yeah, and, and they were like, you know, we had this girl that was doing audio engineering, but she was an intern. You know, we, we need to get somebody that knows what they're doing. And I was like, I'd love to do that. And so I think like... Sometime in the off season, I sent Andrew a text and was like, hey, man, I'd love to be in, you know, to help out with audio stuff. And then for the next three years, 12, 13 and 14 at Crown, I was the main audio guy, you know, there all but five days of the summer. You know, those five days I'd fly out on Sunday, teach marching band and come back in on Friday night. <laughs> that's a lot of band. Yeah. From June 1st to the end. That's, but that's cool. Th I would say that is where I learned. 90% of what I do, like, like on what, the job, on the on job, the you know, troubleshooting what works, what doesn't finding stuff that's broken and not only finding stuff that's broken, but how are you going to fix it with what you got? Very MacGyver type stuff. Like, okay, I got, I got a toothpick. 
yeah. paper clip and a rubber band. Yeah, exactly. How are you going to make the speaker work type deal? <laughs> I mean, when I got to Crown in 2012, I think one of the four subwoofers worked. <laughs> and so I had to go through and figure out like how to make this stuff work. And I was super young, but that's like the stuff where I was like, okay, you know, I got my phone. I can pull up the, the user manual or like the, the schematics on it. Let's figure out what's wrong. Let's, you know, diagnose and make it work. So that's, I'd say that's like 90% of where I've, and now I've been through so many of those experiences that I can just like fix stuff in 30 seconds. Yeah. Oh, that's wrong. Got it. You've seen a, a lot of the problems you're going to encounter on a daily basis. You've seen multiple times before. So you just. Yeah. And I've had less right things to fix it with. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now I, now I keep a car full of like one of everything. That's funny. And so from then you had the three years of experience, uh, doing that for crown all summer and I guess you kind of started to get your name out there to local national high schools, just like, hey, this is what I do. I'd love to come do this for you. Kind of how did that get going? Uh, it blew up when Crown won, yeah. to tell you the truth. Uh, in 2013, that's kind of when everything took off. Uh, I started doing a lot of audio con- consults for just people around, um, just Kentucky and you know, people that I knew, people that knew that I was doing it on drum corps. Uh, at that time, it was like a lot of people were really trying to do stuff, but really didn't know what they were doing. Electronics were so new to the game still, like people yeah. were using it, mic in their pits now, like how yeah, do you do I mean, this? It's five years into the activity at that point, because 2008 was the first like introduction of, of uh, like synthesizers and microphones on keyboards and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so like it, it, five years into the activity, a lot of people had seen it and wanted to be a part of it and thought it was cool, but didn't really know how to do it. And so that's kind of where I... Or how to spend their money to do it. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of where the void I started to fill with, okay, this is what you got. This is what we can do. And it's kind of just taken over from there. And uh, yeah, I guess too, it's even evolved from it. Originally started with, we're just going to mic the keyboard instruments and the synthesizers. And that's it. Uh, which I'm all for. I think it just opens up the door to musicality from the front ensemble. It's where you can hear them without having to watch somebody blast uh, wood marimba bars with acrylic or rubber mallets or something and have them be heard so i'm all for it and now it's even evolved even more into that with like solos you have instruments that are you're sampling the sound and filtering it through which kind of gets into a little bit of a gray area for me personally but it is cool and it opens the door to so much stuff um so obviously at the beginning of this we talked about you getting flown around all over the place Mm -hmm. or kind of name off some of the groups places you get to travel work with now um, there's a couple groups in South Carolina that I work for, um, Nation Ford, which is a bunch of guys that I've known since I was back in the Crown days. Is that football field still a dust pit? No, it's a oh, it's just thank turf. God. It's been turf for oh. five years. Oh, good for them. Yeah, no, they uh, so Nation Ford and kind of the South Carolina area, that Charlotte area. Um, I used to do some work with the Tarpon guys when they would come up to BOA, just because I I've known Frank for a while. Um, uh, Centerville in the Dayton area, you know, all those guys that I've known since Rhythm X. Um, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of people that know me through another Cedar know, Park. You yes. got hooked up with them. Cedar Bishop, Park, I guess. Mike Bishop and, um, a lot of the Austin area schools, um, working for Crossman down in Texas, that kind of gets your name out that way too. So I think this San year, Antonio has some good yeah, bands. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I've, I've kind of been around like Cedar Park and, um, uh, a lot of the UIL bands that don't necessarily do BOA. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, and some of that is, like, groups that Andrew will write for or, you know, Bishop has worked with. And, you know, it's a lot of, like, oh, you're having this problem. I don't know how to fix that. I know somebody that does. Or uh, I think it was, like, I was going up to um, 
was going up to a Centerville camp and I got an email from a band director who was like, hey, our port on our speaker broke. Could you stop by? And I just like stopped by the rehearsal and 20 minutes later had them working, their speaker back working, just had extra parts in the car. Yeah. So like a lot of it's just through word of mouth. Networking for sure. Networking for sure. Pays to know people. Yes, well, yeah. I mean like, and, and still a lot of the people that are at that caliber of at that caliber of teaching are the ones that are going to be able to have enough money to bring in uh, a consultation person. You know what I mean? You're not going to, the band that spends, you know, $2,000 on a box show and box drill every year is not going to bring in an audio consult. Yeah. It's just not not the cards. It's not in the cards. Do you feel like it was kind of an adjustment for you? Like when I watch a show, like as a drummer, I'm like drawn into the percussion section and I'm like, wait, they have a color guard or so like for you as thinking more big picture, like, all right, now I have to listen to the balance between the mellows in the pit, this in the pit, this in the pit, or were you just so focused in on listening to it that you just, like, kind of... Well, I mean, from the, the summer stuff that I do, whenever I do, like, Crossman stuff, it's it's very much music ensemble balance. Yeah. So I don't think I... I really have more of a music ensemble ear now than I do a pit ear or a percussion ear. Like, yeah. I, I rarely ever hear just one section of the the uh, band i hear um, i hear counterpoint like i hear counterpoint of how you know like the mellophones are interacting with the snare drums and how does that balance or you know like i hear di- i hear pairs of sections that are you know either in conflict or are in yeah unity. yeah cool i know i've been guilty of that a million every time i watch a show i'm like there's a guard out there there's a <laughs> horn line playing unless it's like if the percussion's playing that's all I mean, that's I how it is when I judge groups, or, like, if I'm judging, I'm, like, only thinking, like, if I'm judging a visual caption, I'm, like, I don't even know what charts they played, or if I'm judging percussion, I'm, like, I have no idea if that group had a color guard, but sometimes <laughs> that's just, like, what are you focusing on? Are you listening yeah. side one, side two, front, back, yeah, yep. but... <laughs> and a lot of that sampling, too, just, yeah. like, how you sample a band and how you adjudicate that, so... I've, I've been... Um, privy enough to be a part of like winter guard stuff and doing soundtracks and designing for um south's winter guard uh with amanda and that stuff is like uh it kind of opens my eyes a little bit more to color palettes and flag design and uniforms and all that sort of stuff which helps always to know absolutely all right do you want to transition to the current state of the of the activities well i guess that was kind of a good segue like you mentioned you're doing also work a lot with winter guard and wgi and stuff like and we can use that as a segue for just the current state of i guess winter guard and drum corps like your take on it i know we've said stuff on this podcast before between mike and i but just if you think it's growing if you think it's dying what you think works what you think don't work yeah is drum corps going away (laughs) they're gonna have to start making money somewhere else if they're not yeah, you're, you can't make a statement like that and, and not elaborate, so... I mean, I think I think Drum Corps is fine where it's at, but I worry. Um, we we kind of... We talked about the transportation thing and how everything's mm-hmm. going digital, and I, I know, uh, without naming names, I know there have been some Drum Corps that have fudged the paper books before to make things work, and that's no longer legal because the you know Department of Transportation has digital GPS trackers on everybody now, uh, coming up this year, and like so that sort of stuff, and you know just, they're gonna have to get way more efficient with the scheduling shows versus where they rehearse versus where their next show is. It, yep, and rehearsal facilities uh, are starting to get more and more expensive. Uh, the school districts are only tightening down their reins on who can be on their turf, you know, their twenty thousand dollar turf fields. So like. 
and the idea of bringing in a bunch of like people that have no affiliation with your school to use all your facilities is not something people always want to do. Well, yeah, I know the number of high schools that are even willing to house drum corps have gone dra- has gone drastically down. I know, for example, the school that I worked with here in Louisville, Eastern High School, this past this past fall, that I was talking to the director one day, and they used to ha- they used to house the Cavaliers for a couple years in a row in, in the mid 2000s I think mm-hmm. and then one season the Cavaliers didn't go to that show and they ended up housing it was either Vanguard or Phantom one of the two mm-hmm. and w- I think it was Phantom but one of those two for sure and the director told me that they no longer house any drum corps because what whichever one of the two it was mm-hmm. that stayed there left it a freaking mess yep. they trash like, it because it's a bunch of college kids they stayed they- in the gym and they all they all did their haircuts like they buzzed everyone's head that day mm-hmm. in the middle of the gym and left all the hair all over the gym. Yeah. So like the band directors like and they had never had a single problem with the Cavaliers for like the four years before that. And so like the band directors by himself like trying to sweep all this hair up and the principal like showed up at the school and was like, What the hell happened? And so Principal was cool with the Cavaliers, but then Phantom or Vanguard, whatever it was, ruined it, ruined and it. they have never housed the drum corps since. He go, he took the band director and said, "We're never doing this again." Well, that that's the problem is that it's not just happening on a school basis. Like that happens at one school, and then the entire district mm-hmm. doesn't hold host drum corps anymore. Because and that principal tells all the other yeah. principals and the school boards, like, "Hey, this is what happened. Don't do this." So and the members of the corps are not helping it. Yeah, and there've been enough there've been enough small instances like that that probably and with the probably 30% of uh, school districts that wouldn't do it anyways because of liability or insurance or whatever and then there's the other 50% of them that have been screwed over by one drum corps one time and so now you're looking at like what 30 40% of the school districts in the entire country let alone the ones that are around shows yeah. that are, would actually even let you on the premises you know what I mean? Like that's that's where I see it kind of it being kind of squirrely. And also, like you have to think, drum corps like drum corps international is renting out a stadium for eighty thousand dollars for the day, say just random number. And so they have to make all of that money back in ticket sales and, and concessions. And then on top of that, they're supposed to pay drum corps. So they're supposed like, to pay them. Yeah, yeah if you if you, paid a little bit if you go to a certain amount, like the huh. more shows you go to, the more money that you'll get. And it's a hierarchy basis off of like what placement you would get in that show. That's why BD does like twenty shows a year. It's because they go to those shows, they get their money, and then they scoot out and they have Bingo to help out. Yeah, it's like other other show like Pioneer. How many how many uh, rehearsal days does Pioneer have? Zero, because they have to go to every show because they can't afford not to. Wow. So that like ticket prices are going to go up or the stadiums are going to like, there's, there's something that's going to happen that has to make more money in the drum corps side of things. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how ticket prices, cause it's already expensive. And then we went to, Mike and I went to semifinals just cause it was cheaper mm-hmm. and then did like the finals lot watching drum lines warm up for finals. But even that, like more and more people are just like, I'll just stream it and sit on my couch. Yeah. Cause it's, it's easy, it's convenient, and... Well, I looked for a ticket for BOA finals, like, you know, the week of BOA, just because I didn't know if any of my groups were going to be in there, and it was like $100 a seat. Jeez. Like, especially, like, as me as an educator, like, I can't... I, I don't want to do that. No. Unless unless I can get a pass to go in with my band and then go in later and watch the bands, it's just not worth it. Nope. Mm-hmm. It may be if, if I had little Johnny and he was playing tenor saxophone and it was the last time he was going to play tenor sax this year. 
Yeah. It'd be worth it, but... Be more... Yeah. Not for me. You'd have more invested in that. So you think... And and honestly, the starting up of WGI wins kind of maybe hints at this. Do you think eventually, maybe five years down the road, ten years down the road, we could potentially see drum corps steadily start to decline just for financial reasons and all this kind of stuff and indoor continue on the upward trajectory it's been on for the last so many years from indoor is just cheaper it's more convenient for the members you don't give up your whole summer you only have to do weekends you know if it's in the town where you live it's like right there i think i don't know if it's more convenient i think there's been a lot more scholastic Involvement. Um, involvement, which has kind of created a little bit more uh, bankroll for them, so that they're able to get a little bit more things. But I, I mean, having been on the design team and logistics team of an in, uh, independent world class line, like it's not getting any easier. No, in in WGI, in DCI, in anywhere, unless we're unless we're having people win the lottery and build up rehearsal facilities for marching ensembles, like you build a warehouse that has a marching band field on it. And you can charge people to rehearse there. Like, I don't see it getting any easier. And I think that WGI's saving grace is that they have so much scholastic involvement, especially on the Winter Guard side. There are so many Winter Guards that perform in WGI. It's crazy. High schools. And that's where they that's where they make their money. That's their bread and butter is high school, scholastic, drumline, and Winter Guard. And I don't think that the high school scholastic wins will take off as much as Winter Guard and percussion has. Just because concert of band. concert and wind ensemble and symphony band, it's hard to dedicate a whole fall to marching band if you have a competitive marching program, and then turn around and to commit to a whole winter and spring. And you like a lot of those teachers at those really good programs use their concert band to continue to grow their kids and make them better for like that's where that's where it all happens. Well, you you have two schools of thought. Do you use your concert band? to promote the sound and fidelity of your marching band and you putting all your eggs in your bas- basket in your fall band? Or are you taking your fall band and trying to make them play really well and have them be a part of the, uh, bettering the concert ensemble? And I, I think a lot of people, because of the way the school system works and you get new kids in the fall and you leave them in the spring, you almost have to have fall is for spring as opposed to a lot of the winter guards that are super successful, spring is for fall. Where you're getting new kids in in the winter, teaching them how to spin a flag, and then when they come out for summer band, it's like, all right, here's your work, let's clean it. Yeah. I think a lot of that depends on each school system set up for how much time they get to spend with their kids during the day, because pedagogically, just to jump back to that, I don't think that you can really grow your kids as much as you want to in the fall, just because marching band has a lot of rope teaching. That's just kind of the nature of the activity, where as in more the, to do, too. Yeah, as in the spring, you can really dive into theory and making individuals better and i don't know i think it has, to be, a, has to be a cyclical process but yeah well that's that's where i see the split is yeah. that no concert no concert band person that's you know getting distinguished every year is going to be like oh i'll just have a wins ensemble for wgi yeah, yeah. it's like there why would i and a lot of the schools get their funding from like you know kmea state assessment or yep. TMEA state assessment or whatever it may be. You can't even compete in KMEA marching band unless you go to assessment. Exactly. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You you have to, you have to go to assessment to be a part of the next fall season. Um, So that, that in its whole sense of how things are kind of backly tied to each other. And and I I think that would kind of hinder the wins thing, but I'll tell you this, the wins thing has more of a proponent for success than I think drumline or color guard does. 
because there's more kids in the ensemble. There's more kids paying w- dues. You mean WGI wins? So, sorry, yeah, WGI wins. I think the, the WGI wins things has more of a growth proponent than the drumline or color guard has because of how many kids are in it, how many kids are paying dues, you know, the, the amount of your ensemble that's a part of it. But at the same time, if you have a huge band program, like say Madison Central in Richmond, they have 200 kids in their program or 160 wins. You can't have all those kids inside. So some band directors might see that as, I don't want to have auditions. And then so-and-so, Johnny's parents get pissed off because Johnny didn't make the wins ensemble marching band. So I don't want to deal with it. So it's kind of like a catch-22. You have more kids that you can choose from, but at the same time, you have more kids that you can choose from. Well, so yeah. like, <laughs> I just mean from a financial standpoint. Like yes, You have more I people paying that. dues, so yes. it's easier for that to stay afloat. If you have a 40-member a drum line, you know, of those 40 kids, three or four of them aren't going to pay or are going to be late. So yeah. then you're only talking about 37. Do- I mean, it, it the numbers shrink really quickly. Yeah, and high schools. I would say high schools still deal with the same issues that independent groups do as far as we're not the priority to get the gym for rehearsal time in the winter when it's yeah, but they have better f- season. But they have a better loophole. They have a better f- – they have a better f- – Foundation, yeah, yeah, to argue for that or use another, like we'll use the elementary school gym or something. Or they have better funding, you know what yes, I mean? Yes. Uh, the school district's going to support after school activities more than they're going to support an independent. High thing. school supports WGI. That's basically, yeah, yeah, not independent world no. No, yeah. <laughs> or independent open. Well, we've been going for about an hour now. My last question, <laughs> oh, well, I want to. That's all right. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, it's all my stories. Yeah. It's all right. I love it. What piece of advice would you give someone? that was looking, that was younger, that wanted to potentially get into the audio engineering game, what's the biggest piece of advice you would give them? This is the last thing I want to ask you. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, it's such a it's such an ever-changing market. I think there's probably 10 to 20 different ways that you could crack your way into it. Um, the way I did it probably wouldn't work for a lot of people nowadays because it's just ever so changing with kind of like immersing yourself in it uh, and just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. But... Um, that's the best way to learn. That's the way I learned is just just jumping in in or contacting somebody that, you know, is successful in it and being like, Hey, can I shadow you? Or can I just, you know, be around and kind of figure out what you're doing? Any of the people that I do consultations with, I'm like, look over my shoulder. If you have any question about what's going on, I'm going to try and talk you through this. But if I do something that you don't know what's going on, immediately stop me and ask me and I'll go back and I'll tell you why I'm doing it and what I'm doing. Um, but just being able to shadow somebody, uh, immersing yourself in the activity, you know, just going out and trying something yeah. like getting, getting a microphone and trying a podcast or getting, you know, a microphone and going to try to record birds in your backyard. Just anything that kind of can get your fingers or get your feet wet is the way to go. Awesome. There's a lot. One more question. Yeah. What's bluey mean? Splooey as uh, spirit, pride, pride, loyalty, double Shut obligation, up. integrity, excellence. Uh, That's not true. Super pterodactyls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't know, Splooey is like the, like, blue coats have six words. Which They're everybody like knows. Motto, but everyone knows what that means. Pseudo! Phantom has pseudo, pseudo. which everybody also uh, knows. Blue stars have FCO, Phineas Coronado Opus, the end crowns the work, and Cavaliers have Splooey, and nobody... Splooey is definitely way more of a well-kept secret than any yes. of the others. Everyone knows what the rest of those mean. No one that hasn't marched Cavaliers, to my knowledge, no, and even at this point, it's such a mystery. Even if someone told you what Splooey meant, no one's going to believe anyone. Yeah. They're gonna, they're not gonna ever, <laughs> he didn't actually tell me. <laughs> yeah, that's not real. When they might have actually, no one knows. It's just the Cavaliers' little secret. Spirit pride. Shut up. 
That's not what it means. No, 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 no. All right. Well, this has been very eye-opening and interesting and a lot of fun, honestly. <laughs> so let's close this one out. Yeah, man. Make sure you, you. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Aged Out Podcast, which hopefully I would assume you're listening to this on. I don't know how else you got it. Uh, follow us on Facebook. Like us at uh, facebook.com slash agedoutpodcast. Follow us on Instagram at, you guessed it, Aged Out Podcast. There's a theme there. I know. They're all the same. So if you know one, you know them all. Yeah, uh, and, and look forward to some of the other guys that these guys are doing. I think there's uh, you're getting a good proponent of people in activity to talk to. So I think we're headed up to Dayton next weekend, hopefully, to sit down That's with uh, a couple of our friends that live up in that area, and then uh, we'll get those up in a timely manner. So uh, we'll see everybody in a little while. Peace. <laughs>